0: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: So here we go then. This is it. This is the first proper episode of the Stop and Search podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. We're going to talk all things drugs. So here we go. We're off. Thanks so much for joining us, because this is new. This is different. We've not done this before at the UKs, and this is our first proper episode. I'm not going to spend too much time doing an introduction, because I want to get straight into the full show, because the first one we've got is a live panel discussion that we did with Robin Ince, Dr. Susie Gage, who you'd know from the Distraction Pieces Network. She's got her own podcast called Just Say Why to Drugs, which has done unbelievably well, probably far better than this one's going to do, so she set the bar incredibly high. And also with Simon Oxenham, who's now with the new scientist. And we framed it around the science within our drug laws. Um, The shorthand I'm going to call weird science. And I think it's important. I think that it's a great one to start off with because it gives you the the, the nuances and uh, the juxtapositions that we have to deal with in drug policy of what the evidence says compared to what the emotive energy may think So he's a really good one, and with Robin Ince as well, who's a a former guest uh, with Scroobius Pip and the Distraction Pieces Network, he's just a brilliant one to get this kicked off with because he carried the show, He he was a pro at this. And there will be some live footage released online after this, so you can visually see it as well, but that'll come a few months down the line, we want to make sure that you subscribe to iTunes and you get the audio first. And it was entertaining, I think that you'll get a lot from it, so let's get straight into that. I should set the scene as well because this was done live at Tottenham Court Road, Waterstones. They were brilliant, by the way. I fully recommend them. And there might be some live jokes that don't necessarily come across, but don't worry, come down and see us. They'll all make sense. Um, My co host and partner in crime, really, literally, is Neil Woods, uh, former undercover detective. You'll hear him pop up to give some uh, commentary. Um, He's going to be a regular host and guest on this podcast. So yeah, this is it. This is the first proper episode of Stop and Search in association with Leap UK and the Distraction Pieces Network, and I hope you enjoy it. So if we can have a round of applause for each guest, I'm going to introduce first Simon, And is it Oxenham? Oxenham sorry, I don't know how to pronounce it. Simon is, you probably know him from Neurobonkers, but he's also moving over to the New Scientist pretty soon. And is just the general brilliant intellect on all things pseudoscience. So Simon Oxum. Um,
2: Thank you, Jason.
1: We also have Susie Gage, who is a Guardian blogger on all things pseudoscience as well. And Susie is going to be doing another podcast under Scroobius Pips Omnipresent Network. And she's going to be doing it on specifically drugs and what drugs do. So please welcome Dr. Susie Gage. And then we have a personal favourite of mine because I listen to The Infinite Monkey Cage, I listen to Book Shambles and I rather ramblingly said to uh, Robin Ince, I said that I listen to all my podcasts at night in bed and as soon as I meet that podcaster I can no longer listen to him because they have become too connected That sounded all right in my head, but when I said it to Robin about ten minutes ago, it was completely bizarre. So please welcome Mr Robin
3: Ince. Thank you very much. Shall I go on that one there? Brilliant. Thank you. I was fascinated that it was Northampton that Neil did, because the most charismatic drug takers I know all come from Northampton. And I do mean the charismatic ones. Yeah. By the way, when is Neil coming on to... Because I didn't see the dance, and it seems to me that's a lovely way to end a podcast with... um, The kind of naked uh, polythene curtain dance?
1: We'll do that, yeah. You're going for it? Okay, good. It does require five pints, legal drugs. So legal drugs get you into quite a state. So anyway, the reason we're doing this podcast, as I said, is that we really need to address the pseudoscience of drug policy. And one of the things that, from my position, being a, I don't know what you'd describe, a blogger, promoter, marketer, whatever, is that... It's, the drug policy can be really science-heavy, and to interpret that, and I'm aiming this at Susie Gage, how do you interpret that kind of high-level neuroscience babble?
0: <laughs> babble, blimey. Um, you're right, it is, it is, or it can be sometimes presented deliberately to kind of confuse as well, and science can quite often be manipulated by the people presenting it in order to sort of fulfill the means that they want it to fulfill. So this can make it really difficult to interpret, but in a way you need to kind of strip away all of the kind of explanation of the findings and just look at at the actual data and make your own interpretations from it if you want sort of to get to what to the sort of crux of the matter.
1: Do you agree with that, Simon? From the, someone that's done predominantly a lot of pseudoscience mopping up. I mean, I I read you really early on when you did a fantastic piece on the Daily Mail, the Just One Joint, which is now legendary. If if, if you Google Just One Joint, you'll probably see Simon's uh, takedown of it. What was that like when you you actually got them an award, didn't you? Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, that's right. The Orwellian Prize for Journalistic Misrepresentation, (laughs) which is a prize um, run by an Oxford neuroscientist called Dorothy Bishop. And basically, you look at a bad article, it's a bad news article about science, and for every mistake in the headline, you get three points. For every mistake in the subtitle, you get two points. And for every mistake in the body of the text, you get one point. And I, did, I, I came across this um, news article in the Daily Mail, which originally had the headline, just one cannabis joint can bring on schizophrenia, as well as damaging memory. And... Going through the article, the whole article had 23 points. And and a lot of those were just in the headline because it wasn't about just one joint, it wasn't about joints, it wasn't about cannabis, and it wasn't about schizophrenia. (laughs) The entire article had been constructed um, to to make a case about argument. And it was, this wasn't just a bad reading of scientific research, but it was a complete... they just thrown in the reference there, pretty much just to hang what they, their ideas already were on this article. So, so for some articles like that, you can, you can really pick them apart quite easily yourself. You don't need a degree in neuroscience or psychology to be able to spot that that's a bad article.
1: Um, we use that example in the film, as in the, in the culture, how we use that as an example. One of the things that I saw Robin recently, at uh, a podcast called Lonitix, and Robin was just on fire. I'm not just saying that because he's next to us, but he, he was just deconstructing the media and, and left-wing politics basically.
3: And See, it, that's what I do when I'm drunk. I deconstruct <laughs> the media in front of 50 people in Camden. <laughs> <laughs> it's... Oh, we shouldn't be promoting that kind of thing, but it really does, uh, it's what's required if you've spent a day reading any newspapers because I, I have a campaign which is that everyone should just stop reading newspapers, I think they're kind of third, I know I shouldn't say that, no maybe online, online it's fine, but the, because you you start, and, and the moment, once you become aware of the mythic nature of so much of it, of the desire for melodrama over any kind of evidence, then you just think every, even, it doesn't matter what the newspaper is, the Daily Mail you think, well yeah, you go in there armed, don't you, because you go, well it's the Daily Mail or The Sun or whatever. But actually, you know, The Guardian as well. You just think, oh my God, this is somebody who's totally misunderstood this. And I've got a campaign now which is just don't read newspapers in the morning. Just print out your favourite painting on a, and just stare at it on a train. <laughs> just stare at that image. Whatever it is. It might be an Edward Hopper, it might be a Constable a Turner, whatever it is. And just stare at it. And by the end of that half hour you will have found more beauty and interest in the world and have educated yourself far better than reading some shit which has just been there to desperately try Try and get as many comments underneath it as possible and go, oh, look, we're trending on Twitter because we've confused falling off a cliff with smoking a joint, you know, just (laughs) (laughs) because what did they do in that? I'm fascinated to know because the thing that interests me is sometimes I think you see and again, even in the Daily Mail, you look at the comments underneath and all of the readers have gone, this is rubbish. You know, And so with something as badly put together as that article that you're talking about, do you actually think there will be readers who will go for it? Or is the problem that they only read the headline because they're waiting to get to the Sudoku? And there genuinely has been research done into this, that a lot of newspapers like the Denimel, that people are just waiting to get to the fun bit. So they see the headline about whatever's been banned or whatever's made people go, you know, insane... And they haven't got to the bit at the end which goes, oh, and just for further information for readers, we've made this up. They never get to that final paragraph. But That's- it's
0: not just, it's not just um, problems with the Daily Mail people only reading the headlines. I get statistics on my blog about how long the article is, how long it would take an average person to read it, and how long is the average time spent on the page. And it's really depressing reading. Most people don't read blogs all the way through. They don't read articles online all the way through. They read the first paragraph and then they move on.
2: Ben Goldacre dubbed this the, pa- the caveat in paragraph 19, because so often in a newspaper article, you'll get all of these claims, and then right at the bottom, you'll get that caveat that throws it all out of the window.
1: I think we can go one step further as well. I think from a drug policy marketeer point of view, most people just read the thumbnail. So if you yeah. post it on Facebook, it's people have made the decisions. So if you if you put something that's quite reasoned, quite nice, cited... People just deconstruct it straight from that, whatever the tagline is. And if you've got ones like BuzzFeed and that lot, just clickbait now. And, and this is kind of the issue is that why we're we having to do this, why we're we having to talk more, is just to kind of get those voices out there, a sense, and, and just have some position of actually having a dialogue, because we're just not talking anymore.
3: But how do you, this thing that I find like, both you work in science communication. How do you get evidence-based thinking? How do you get people excited enough by it? Because I know lots of people who are interested in that kind of thing, but they're the kind of people that I hang around with. Um, you know, wizards, alchemists, people who live in bunkers. And, uh, and they, they're really excited by those things. But there is something alluring, isn't there, about the anecdote. And there's also something, Lurian, that says, this underlines what I believe already. So it's very hard, isn't it? How do you try and turn over so, and just say, I know this is what you want to believe, but here's... Yeah, we're seeing it with the Brexit thing all the time at the moment.
0: This is, that's the billion-dollar question, isn't it? And I'm not sure that we've answered it yet. But I think some encouraging things are happening, like recently there was an article in the guardian about a study looking at cannabis that and then the guardian sort of staff writers wrote a very straightforward news article about it and i put up a more in-depth kind of going into the paper what the results actually showed what the limitations of the study were kind of really getting into actually all the science about that particular study and my paper, my article got more, got shared more than the news article, because perhaps that says something about Guardian readers or about people who read my blog, perhaps. But they wanted to know, like, they weren't scared of knowing the truth about the study and what the limitations are and trying to really get at sort of the nitty gritty of it getting into a really quite detailed explanation of the science. Like, people are interested in that. It's just difficult to know where, where to go to look for it, I think.
3: Is there a problem? Sorry, can I take over from yes, you? Because sure. I don't have any expertise at all, so it's much easier so if I become the, the interviewer. Um, the, and you're now an expert, OK? Because so, uh, your film is great, by the way. I thought it was a very, very interesting film. Um, the, what I, I'm kind of intrigued by as well is, that, isn't there a problem which is because of the speed of the news cycle? That, like something that like, I'd not realised, You know, all the meow-meow stories that came out, what was that, 2006, something like that? Uh, and I hadn't realised that everything that was used to say how dangerous that drug was, turned out to be much the same as things like, you know, the use of child's play, uh, the the horror film uh, after the Jamie Bulger murders, which it it, it turned out that there was no evidence to say that it was meow, meow that had... if anything, deaths went down
2: as people switched from cocaine to meow, meow, methadone. Though places like the army and in prisons where they wanted to evade drug testing, the
3: deaths actually went down. So, but how do you get the story out there, you know, because this is one of the problems is to actually have a proper evidence-based piece, it might take two days, yeah. and then even, you know, the, the, the newspapers we think of as the brainy newspapers are quite a thing, now that's out of the news cycle now.
0: Well, this is the problem, I think, with, um, like, the time it takes to do toxicology reports and that sort of thing, there's a vacuum of space where some like, the event has happened, but there's no information about what has happened, and... My personal opinion is that we could, we as the sort of scientific community and the media could do something akin to what has been done in terms of reporting about suicide. And that is have a set of guidelines for um, police, for scientists, and for media about how to report on drug deaths before there's any toxicology information. I think that's something quite simple to do that could potentially be really effective just to stop that kind of rumour and stuff getting reported as, as fact before um, before actual toxicology reports have happened. Because the case with... Um, there was a case in Scunthorpe, I think, is probably what you're referring to, where yeah. two, two boys died, and it was widely reported that they'd taken methadone. But they hadn't... They'd accidentally taken methadone. Um, and then there was um, a story about someone who'd... Uh, ripped off his testicle when he was high but actually that was written on a forum and it was someone having a joke and saying like oh god the media will report anything i bet you if i put this online and lo and behold um, and then before that even there was um in the states there was the the causeway cannibal who it said was high on bath salts when he uh i think he like bit someone's face off or something it was really horrendous um, and it he he was on a legal high, he had alcohol in his system, um, but he didn't have anything like um, methadrome or I can't remember what the variant was that was popular in the States, but it was something similar, that kind of legal high, cathinone legal high.
3: But he did bite someone's face off?
0: Well, it was caught on film, biting someone's face off. Caught on film? <laughs> As like only they've
3: been as good as your person at that hotel and actually been watching, because you should get involved. So that's a message, I think, for this podcast. If you in any way are filming someone having their face bitten off, <laughs> get involved, stop it. <laughs> you know, get the first bit of footage, you'll still be able to sell that. I think, I think it was securi- it.
0: security film rather than someone like with their right. camera. I was going to say in their face, <laughs> but the that notes. seems very inappropriate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: But that, I, would, I wonder if it was the alcohol that did that or whether sometimes there are, there's a certain kind of person who inside has a desire to bite people's face off and then just uses the booze as an alibi.
0: I think it's quite likely that he was probably having a psychotic episode. Yeah. So
1: without dropping you in it, Simon, so, mean, that's kind of your department. Yeah, I think... Not that you bite faces off for it. <laughs> yeah. <That's just> but,
2: <laughs> and, and faces getting bitten off is an extreme example. That doesn't happen every day. But things not too dissimilar from that do happen every day. And it's, it's quite easy for a newspaper to select articles that fit in with their agenda. And there was, there was a brilliant study which looked at um, how drugs get pre- presented in newspapers. And if you look at a paracetamol death, I, I, I'm not, I can't remember any of the statistics, statistics here, but um, very, very few of them, a tiny fraction, will be reported in the newspaper.
3: I think it was 268 but. in 2008 was the number of paracetamol deaths. Right. Don't expect any other information <laughs> from me. But I did some reading before this. Completely, but the rest. Of but us no, it I think there was someone. There was. A, I think it might have been in David Nutt's book, or certainly in, within that, yeah. that he looked at the number of times that uh, I'm trying to remember which uh, particular drug the negative effects of drugs were reported. It, MDMA, was, it, it was MDMA, wasn't it? Was MDMA compared to and, and I think only one paracetamol death story yeah. was reported. When we at when get along 68. the line to MDMA just one MDMA
2: death. We reported it in several different newspapers. Goes and I think completely. that was, you know,
1: information is beautiful as well. And they did a whole uh, statistical analysis as well. And I think cannabis, you know, it's contestable whether there's cannabis deaths or not. But I think it was something like 900% or so ridiculous. But, and, and does that frustrate you from a science point of view, The that, that link from disinformation to ears?
2: Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and And to get back to your question of what... how can we tell people and spread the word about this? Um, I'd suggest there's something we can do that's better than staring at a painting on the train, but still doesn't solve the million-dollar question of how we can actually spread it as, as news producers. But it's something you can do, and it's called an RSS feed. And there's millions of apps you can get for your phone, or your tablet, or your computer. Um, one of them's Feedly, is the most popular, but there's hundreds. And for every website which does good, high-quality news, or every writer, rather than following them on Twitter, where you blink and you miss it, and it, you've lost the story, is you follow their RSS feed, and every single story they write, you'll read in the morning on your way to work.
1: Sounds eminently sensible. <laughs> why aren't we doing that and i going back to what you said susie is how do we have those guidelines of reporting deaths sensitively what do we do
0: um i think it's it can be a grassroots thing i think i think that's the way it happened in terms of suicide deaths it was a group of scientists who were getting very frustrated with the way that it was being reported and the, well, the fact that how dangerous it is if if suicides are reported sensationally then you end up with copycats and that kind of thing and they just came up with these guidelines and approached media i think that the science media center is a great place to go to to sort of try and implement these kind of things but i think there would be reception towards it i think it could easily be achievable
1: because one of the things it's it's tempting to do in this sector is t- to use celebrity deaths to make a point And and someone recently said to me about that is, should we use uh, Prince or or whatever it may be? And I'm personally not in favour of that. I don't particularly like doing that. But is there a right time to use the celebrity sector?
2: I, I think the classic right time was Amy Winehouse's death because that's a death that can happen again and again and does happen every day. And it's people with alcohol problems, but it applies to any drug problem. And they detox, they think that out, And they they can drink a tiny fraction of what they used to drink every day, but because they've detoxed, because their tolerance is down, it kills them. And people just don't know that.
3: See, I hadn't realised, again, until you asked me to do this, and I started reading around, that it's between two and three teenagers every week die of binge drinking. And that is again, if if that was reported in the way that we see drug deaths reported, which are, as far as I can see, far more intermittent because they may that that would just that that blew me away. That's an incredible thing.
2: Yeah, I think I think people would have a very different view about the harms of drinking and every other drug if we reported those deaths in the actual ratio that they happen in the real world.
3: Do you think that? That there is, when, is it a political reasoning behind the way this is done, or is it just for kind of the sake of it's a story that is a splash and it's melodrama? Do you think there's something deeper to it than that?
1: I have a theory, and I think Susie's probably going to be a better one to answer this, but I've got limited experience with the Huffington Post, with, with Virgin, things like that. You tend to find that people hit the articles that anger them they want to they want to be ruffled they want to get prod there. you know get in there and have their little spit at the screen so when you have pete hitchens for example that puts out this great piece on cannabis he knows he's aiming at the, the cannabis fraternity so they get angered and they share it that's hits that's ad revenue that's in the bag if you put out something like susie does something that's quite reasoned as you said it can be quite frustrating you don't get hits Have you found that it when you do put that extra
3: effort in and it just sits there on the shelf it's like Why do I bother? (laughs) Well, that's one of the lessons, though, isn't it? One of the things is, if you see an article that you really hate and you think in no way represents your version of the truth or what you believe, then don't retweet it read, tweet something which counters it, find the best source possible, say read this book, because you're right, the moment that hit, and I used to, do, it's not every Monday, because I did a New Material Night, and sometimes I'd come up with anything, so I'd always read Melanie Phillips' column, and then I realised it wasn't bringing me any happiness, it was an easy, you know, and, and that addiction to going, I'm furious unless I'm alive, it seems to be what keeps the British media
2: going, almost. And when there's something like that that you absolutely have to share on your Facebook or your Twitter or whatever, there's a very simple website called donotlink.com, and you just paste the URL in there, and what it does is it adds something called a nofollow HTML attribute. You can do that yourself if you're a blogger. But all it does is it stops your posting of bumping that website one step up the ladder on Google, and i've got a theory that a lot of these journalists that write these articles that are so ridiculous that we all want to scream this is so wrong are doing that because they know just what'll happen they'll get a lot of advertising money
3: because it's clickbait and it that's the case. No, but then I reckon they are also, because I've met some of those journalists, and uh, in fact, one of the warnings I would say about one of the journalists who's uh, particularly ardent, I, I probably won't even say, cause he's always threatening me with legal action, but uh, I have to admit that I do think his uh, obsession with skunk has perhaps affected some of his judgment on some of the scientific issues he's written. But, uh, <laughs> but that uh, I, I've met, and I think, I thought it was all a game i think they then really start believing it you know people who just started writing about you know whether it's climate change or you know asbestos or whatever and then you think oh my god now they're almost creationists and it starts off with a game they think oh, actually this is the truth
0: some of my favorite articles to write are the ones that take down clickbait because there is when there is a backlash then um people then do start sharing the sort of corrected article as well. And that can be really satisfying when you're like, good, I feel like I've actually achieved something positive today. I might have made a difference. Like, it's, that's a really amazing feeling. But when you spend ages writing something that like, you yourself really strongly believe and then um, it just flops, it's really frustrating.
2: <laughs> I, I used to have a little chuckle when I'm looking at the analytics every month when a little, little section of my traffic came from Peter Hitchens' Daily Mail blog, debunking... <laughs> yeah something he said
1: it, it does. It, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You have to counteract it in some sort of way I've, I've taken to ignoring it now because it's just got beyond the pale. But, but going back to celebrity deaths, I mean, in, um, in your sector Robin, you probably rub shoulders with quite a lot of people.
3: In the celebrity in sector. The sector, sector? Yeah, very, you're very much the, the celebrity
1: sector.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is the general <laughs> feeling? <laughs> i trying to think what celebrities are. No, I, yeah, anyway, yeah.
1: Well, anybody to me that's kind of up on the screen is a celebrity and I take to bed with me as we quite clearly established earlier. But, um, is there anybody that you rub shoulders with that... I don't want to obviously give away the predilections, but is there a... Is there a the, 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 it's quite a symbol of, of the celebrity lifestyle to be involved in sex, drugs and rock and roll. Mm. Would you say that's blown out of proportion? Do you think that it is far Again, more Again, we're
3: looking at the kind of people I hang around with. We, we're not, you know... We, oh, my God, have you seen? They've got a late night at the British Library. And, uh, you know, we're off. But, I mean, there are... There is some... I've never really like in terms of my drug taking. It was uh, I, I had to stop smoking cannabis. It did start making me paranoid. I don't know why it was just something. I I'm I'm overly self aware. I think this is a problem. So because of that level of self consciousness, I've never really dabbled. You know, I I kind of I took ecstasy twice, and and I've said before it just made me slightly less miserable in a field. And it just you know <laughs> wasn't it didn't work for me really. And it's um, but most of the people that I work with, I mean, there's a few who are actually very constructive with their drug use um and i genuinely mean they're people who know what they're doing and because that's what i I found pragmatically in terms of like i said i don't really put apart from you know coffee and 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 beer that's pretty much it for me now because i always want to be creating stuff and there are some people i know who are just brilliant at you know taking drugs and going this has given me a new idea i mean that's what i think when i'm 60 because i've got to wait till my son's grown up but He'll be old enough when I'm 60, and I'm going to take loads of LSD and just find out what happens, and I'm just going to lie in a bath that's in the shape of Aldous Huxley, and there's going to be about seven different doors. You know, one of them with perception. I might open that one, but then... But I just, you know, I, I find it very exciting and interesting, but those are the kind of people I hang around with, not, I suppose, people who... They're pragmatic drug users. I mean, interestingly, one of my friends who was... Um, Uh, does, does smoke quite a lot. He said the only bad experience he's personally ever had, again, because he's, he has, he's thoughtful about it, he's done the reading. That's part of the problem we have, isn't it? Which is, as long as you just say, drugs, drugs are bad. Then no one knows which drugs are worse, which drugs actually you might be okay on, or how to take them. They just become this big kind of cauldron of of illegal things. And he said it was actually a legal high. He was interested. He thought, I'm just going to try one of these legal highs, you know, the back of the 14 times or whatever, advertising that. And he said it's the only time where he felt that he didn't possess his own body for a week. That he actually had that thing where his brain was one place and he would look at himself. And that, I think, is quite an interesting thing, again, about the, the decriminalisation. Which is, from what I can gather, there is some danger in the, the market for legal highs. But, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think the real danger is when this psychoactive drugs bill, which has just
2: been passed, and at any day now could become law... Is there's a huge legal drugs market. And as you said, a lot of these drugs are extremely dangerous and extremely active. Um, just you're talking about one or two or three milligrams, which is um, far more active than a lot of the most of the drugs on the market. Um, and those drugs are currently sold at the same prices that illegal drugs are on the internet perfectly legally. And they don't contaminate the illegal drugs market because they make money for people selling them illegally on, the, on the internet, and they go to customers who at least will probably likely know what they're doing. But as soon as all these drugs become illegal, they could become dumped at a very low price on the illegal drugs market and to start to, to be used as cutting agents for the white powders that get passed around the pub. And if, if that does happen, we can expect an absolute car crash.
0: And I think that might be similar to what happened a few years ago when um, MDMA that was available on the street started being replaced by PMA, which um, up to all extents and purposes looks exactly the same, but has two crucial uh, differences to MDMA, which make it extremely dangerous for people who are used to taking MDMA. And the first is that it has a, a longer lag before you start to feel an effect. And the second is that it has a much smaller, what's called a window of efficacy, where it has a sort of good or the effect that the user wants before it becomes toxic it becomes toxic at a much lower level than mdma so seasoned mdma users would take something obviously they wouldn't know what it was because they'd bought it off whoever they would bought it off it's a white powder Um, they would wait the usual amount of time nothing would happen so they would double dose and end up going into toxicity and it, it was incredibly dangerous and it was just that happened to be that MDMA had become less available on the street and PMA had sort of moved in to fill the void. And some people didn't know that what they were taking was PMA. Other people had been told that, oh, you try this, it's stronger. And like, like, no, more toxic isn't stronger, it's a different thing. But it can be, something like that can be incredibly dangerous.
1: I mean, from our point of view, a, from a, almost a legal definition... There, there is quite a misnomer in the terms legal and illegal drugs that they don't really exist because we don't have legal tables. It's just one of those things that it's an unregulated market, it's a regulated market. So we have a regulated market for alcohol. You know the deaths are there because you know it's aggressively marketed. We know that ridiculous amounts of MPs are sponsored by alcohol companies. So there's, there's a, there's a vested interest across society to sort of have a stimulated market for for financial gain. And with with legal hires, they came in almost. Under the radar didn 't they, because you know illegal drugs in quotation marks were there on the shelf, people knew what they were doing, what they were getting into with illegal drugs. all of a sudden, there was these new batches that were coming through you weren 't going to get in trouble for them, and interestingly you 're not prosecuted for having legal highs in possession they 're essentially decriminalized through temporary class planning and orders, and what should have been the new psychotic substance bill which then got thrown out because it was so ridiculous because they were trying to ban tea and ginseng and all sorts of weird things. So is, is that a danger within the the lack of science within drug policy that you throw it all up in the air and it's just kind of a complete mess because we just don't know what we're doing? Is, is there much science within drug policy as it stands?
2: You, you can trace this all back to about 2008 which there was a huge rate on the precursor chemical that was then used to make MDMA in China. I think 50 tonnes of the, the chemical seized. And overnight, um, millions and millions of pill-takers in England suddenly couldn't get there, suddenly couldn't go out on the weekend to the raves, and, and MDMA just wasn't available in 2008 in much of the world. And that created a huge void for methadone, which... Filled that void pretty effectively until and the, the drug producers found a new chemical to to, to make MDMA with again, um, and but that's how we now have this legal high market. And now methadone is banned. The the drugs that are constantly being produced to make it are being banned. Um, that the to replace it are being banned one by one, and we just seem to be going on a trend going from. What of comparatively safe drugs like MDMA, um, LSD, the, the classic illegal drugs? And as the molecules are going farther and further away from what we know, they're becoming more and more dangerous. And it's just right now, it's a lottery.
1: So, would you to know how to make certain drugs? We, we, technically would you be able to do it would you not that we're not we're not <laughs> going in we don't advocate that but would you know how to
0: i wouldn't have a clue i'm am I'm an epidemiologist so i look at like population health and um like deal with people rather than sort of like so big level rather than small sort of cellular level so i'm sorry i'm not i'm not your I'm not your girl for that. Well,
3: welcome to this edition of Call My Bluff. So, let's find out.
0: Right. Where's the bathtub? Uh,
2: not me, Governor.
1: Robin, do you know how to make
2: drugs?
3: No, I haven't got a clue. I was, it's just not my... I can't even grow stuff or mend things. I can make an I'm, excellent old-fashioned. People. But... um no, I find it very interesting when you're talking about the the, the, the legal highs versus, you know, because the, the, this is something that i would not realised. I was looking at that chart of actually the the, the kind of, the, you know, the danger of, of, of drugs and things like ketamine. We were talking about this before we came on, that um, ketamine is actually quite low, in, as, as, you know, as a drug in itself in terms of its its danger. And again, this seems to come back to... Because people aren't properly educated about it, because it's illegal, then they, it does become dangerous. So I wondered if you could, because I know you've just done a load of podcasts about this, but, like, ketamine, for instance, I, I, I'm intrigued to find out that that's probably on my list of things I'll do when I'm 60 now. When... I,
0: th- I think ketamine is a very interesting drug because it has an incredibly useful medical purpose as an anaesthetic, and it's really useful in countries where you can't, or locations where you can't get hold of a respiratory... Um, Apparatus because it's an anaesthetic that doesn't sort of lower your um, breathing rate, so it can be really useful. It's on the WHO's list of essential medicines, but if abused, it can be quite dangerous as well. It can have really, if you use it heavily, um, chronically for long periods of time, it can have really serious problems for your bladder and for your urinary tract, um, things like that as well. So it's 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 just sort of a really good example of how it's much more complicated than saying drugs are good or drugs are bad it's it's all about um sort of location that they're being used um and the sort of everything that goes around it as well it's not just they don't exist by themselves it depends on the person using it the situation they're using it in and all sorts of other things
3: but then that becomes it's about sensible yeah. You know, because some people would say you can't talk about sensible drug use because the moment you're taking them you've stopped being sensible whereas if you do get to that point of education where you go oh actually I've got to be careful with this because doesn't it what's it do it, it uh, widens the um, isn't it isn't it the, the bladder the actual the bladder lining thickens, it thickens or something it, Yeah. 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 Um, it's probably not a good idea actually when I'm 60 because that'll be going anyway won't it at that point <laughs> but it's um, but that you know, that, that, again, seems to me that, again, from somebody who doesn't really you know, know what they're talking about, but, it, see, if you make these things, you decriminalise them, then you are able to educate. You can actually go into schools and say, look, you... Because we, we know, you know, I'm, I presume, it's probably highly likely that at some point, my kid, when he grows up, there will be things that, it, that he does. It's not just cider at the war memorial anymore. You know, Woodpecker, is no longer manufactured. Um, so... I would rather at least he had some knowledge. And, you know, I can pass on some knowledge. You know, don't take X unless you're in a field, really miserable. It's six in the morning and you've been forced to watch the stereophonics at Glastonbury. (laughs) Um, The really was forced. Um, But that, so that, to me, is that part of what's behind your kind of agenda, which is that if you can get these things out in the open then you can reduce many of the you know, the, the, the things that do occasionally happen, the problems, that, you know, the health risks. I think that's, that's our message in general, isn't it, Neil, is
1: harm reduction. The harm reduction shouldn't be a dirty term. And I think Neil could probably speak on this. I think with, with uh, the background that Neil's got in, in being around drug users um, on all levels, really, I mean, harm reduction, would you, would you say that's pretty much what our predominant message is?
4: Yeah, I mean, we we do what we do to keep people alive. I think that's that's the that's the starting point of it. And um, you, you know, I've, I've worked amongst people and, and seen how their drug taking experience is, is so much more dangerous. Um, you know, see, I've seen people having to inject in a disused toilet in a dusty place, and you know, all, all of those all of those kind of um, problems. But that's that's one end of the spectrum. That's problematic drug use where they should be cared for anyway. But then the the other end of the spectrum, just simple things like nightclubs not switching on the tap tap water, so that people have to buy drinks, and you know people need to be able to get access to water. And these are the kind of things that keep people healthy, keep people safe. But you can only actually regulate for those things if we have an open, honest discussion about what people are doing, because uh, drug laws don't stop people doing what they're doing.
0: I think this is a big problem at the moment: is that we don't have a sort of believable. Um, sort of advice that we give to young people or to anyone really about the harms of drugs and the the fact that some drugs are more harmful than others and it's a message that sort of just isn't put out there if you tell a teenager that, that cannabis is incredibly harmful and extremely dangerous and then they see their peers using cannabis with no ill effects they see they might use it themselves and have no ill effects it just means that the legitimacy of the message about drugs that are more seriously harmful gets completely lost and i think that's really really problematic and it's it's so easy to do something about that it's just to be a bit more honest about what um what we know about these different substances and that's the sort of the purpose of my podcast that i'm putting out in the next month or so is going to be just talking about the evidence that we know about different substances
2: the dare program in the united states is the perfect example of this And they've done several studies and the, the dare program which went to, to children, told them what the law the law is, that cannabis sc- is a Schedule One drug in the United States, which means it has absolutely no medical use. And that's it's equally as dangerous as every other most dangerous drug we can think of. And children walk out of school, have a joint with their friends, and think everything they just told us was a complete load of rubbish. And it's, Maybe a lot of it was a complete load of rubbish, but not all of it, but it all gets thrown out the window.
1: How would you talk to your child, how will you talk to your child about drugs?
3: Well, currently I use songs, but I'll probably move on from that as he gets older. Um, Do you know what, it's one of those things, it's very hard to work out when you want to bring these things up. Because, of course, it just, you know, again, it depends on the social situation that he's in. Uh, it depends on how, I mean, the, the handy thing is social media has made it much easier to, uh, spy on your foolish children who shouldn't update everything that they do. Um, that's actually my niece is not my son yet. He doesn't have a social media account, but I, I, I think there's, uh, hopefully it can just be that kind of honest thing of, you know, some, you may well get off of this at some point. You might, um, you can read, I think it's that rather than me telling him, because by then I'll be even older, because Brian Cox has been sucking out my life force, so I'll just be this weird, <laughs> trivelled old thing. Um, but to be able to direct them to books, magazines, you know, things that they, they can trust, and just say, just have a little look at this. I mean, that's one of the things, that's the great thing about encouraging reading, isn't it? If you encourage reading in children and you can keep them having that addiction to, to read, then you can start going, here's another thing that we can kind of you know, point you in this particular direction. So I haven't really worked it out yet. Hopefully I've got a few years um but i think that's one of the things that i would do which is just to uh, what i do all the time with him which is to try and every time he's got a question say let's go on a little journey and find out how we can find out more and how you can answer these questions yourself so it's not just entirely up to me to say well here is why the sky is blue or whatever
1: so what would you say you guys the best sources for information are at the moment i mean we've got talk to frank obviously
2: what are the potential benefits for that and what are the potential detracting factors I, I would recommend people to look at Professor Nutt's Independent Scientific Committee on Drugs. I'm not sure what the URL for that is, but it's the first hit on Google if you type in ISCD. And it, they provide a, a very accurate breakdown of what we know about each drug and the interactions, which I'd say is, if you think your children are going to take drugs, the, f- the most important thing is, what do they interact with? dangerously with. For example if they're taking ketamine they shouldn't be taking any other depressants they, sh- they definitely shouldn't be consuming alcohol with it because that could be really dangerous and above all else that's what they need to know Of course his book, Professor Nutt's book as well Drugs Without Hot Air which is probably around here
1: somewhere and, and again I can't recommend that enough, it's, it's stripped down you can understand it and, and from my point of view that can be some of the problems with drug policy in general across the board is just most people the layman, just don't understand what's going on drugs are bad They're on the bracket and on the shelf. How do we deconstruct that, disseminate information? What do we do?
3: Sack your drugs advisor. (laughs) (laughs) That's what they did, didn't they? I I mean, that's that's one of the great bits of that story, uh, which is, you know, and this is the battle you have, you know, which is he was basically sacked because they said look this isn't what the public perception is and so because he did the you know equity that's what he called it didn't he equity comparing uh, um the danger of, of, of horse riding with uh ecstasy and you know i, I think him and david is another good example of, of that as well david you know david Spiegelhalter, great guy in terms of on, on risk management and and about understanding the risks of all the different choices you might make in in your life um it's an interesting thing isn't it where he was sacked and i think it was, was it Alan Johnson at the time who said the thing where uh, um, well you can't have a government advisor who's talking against government policy? But you say, well, why do you have a government advisor then? Because they're there to shape your policy. And sometimes they might not agree with your opinion because, you know, as you were saying, they've got the politics degree or they know how to you know, look at Beowulf. But they might not have this greater understanding of the, the science. And that's, that's one of the problems we find in
1: Leap, when we, we have certain meetings which we obviously can't go on a record with, is that we know a lot of times they agree with what we're saying, but their political self gets in the way. You know, the, the, we, they, the Politicians in this country still don't see it as a vote winner, whereas in America, they're in Canada. You could argue that you know the Liberal government got in on pretty much a cannabis ticket. You could, we're seeing signs of that around the world now, aren't we, that
2: drug policy is being grasped as the next
1: political hook
2: are we ever going to get that here? I think before we do, we need to change public perception. I think that's what's really holding us back because the politicians panders to the media, but the media panders to the public. And you can really tell this if you look at the comment threads in it's like a Daily Mail article on drugs. And, and they're, they're, we, we, have a, we have a big problem on our hands actually changing what the average man on the street thinks because people have been so misinformed by so many years of inaccurate... Um, coverage, both by politicians and the media, that that actually changing that is, 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 is we don't know how we're going to do it. Is is there benefits of insights
1: of using drugs? Because there is there is quite a few different scientists that are on record, Carl Sagan. We've we've recently had the birthday of the bicycle trip as well on LSD, which an LSD's been in the news as Henry Fisher over here from Vaultface was getting all excited about. Can we use drugs in science in a mind-expansive kind of way? Is is that taboo? Can we do it?
0: Um, Well, so Nobel Prize winners have said that um, LSD has helped them. Like it was. Carey Mullis, I think, saying that he invented this technique, this thing, and he said that LSD helped him sort of see the DNA molecule, but he's sort of backed away from that more recently, that statement. so I'm not... That is
3: quite a wonky autobiography, his autobiography, isn't it? He's <laughs> quite an interesting one. Mm.
0: But, I mean, I don't know about sort of scientists using it for mind expansion, but there are lo- loads of really interesting studies going on at the moment tr- using recreational banned drugs in a medical context that are throwing up some really, really interesting results. I think psilocybin um, pilot studies for treatment-resistant depression, that's that's amazing, that's really interesting and potentially, like, groundbreaking, game-changing, kind of. These people have tried all sorts of different ways of of treating their depression.
2: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up.
0: and nothing has worked, and yeah, we're really, really early stages at the moment, but that's really exciting, I think. Um, So it's not necessarily scientists using it, but and MDMA as a treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder in a therapeutic session. I think that's something that's really interesting, and it's kind of going back to where it was back in the 70s when MDMA was used in marriage counselling. It's not a new idea, but it's sort of bringing it back round of saying that it's stupid to think of these substances as either good or bad when they—they're much more sort of nuanced than that.
2: Yeah, I think this is exactly where it's going to happen. Ketamine, likewise, has been been shown to have absolutely unbelievable effects when, in the studies that it's been used, looked at to deal with depression, which is practically untreatable. I mean, we we know very—I mean, not practically untreatable, but the drugs that we have to treat it are an absolute lottery at the moment. That we our knowledge of depression is, is almost back to front. We think depression works a certain way because we, we invented drugs that, oh, they happen to treat it, therefore we think serotonin is the, the, it's entirely
3: based on, on those drugs. But so, uh, well, didn't Neil say, you say saying? I, I, I don't know if it's going to be in the podcast, but beforehand you were talking about uh, possibly suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And haven't there been, hasn't there been research again in the use of ecstasy where sometimes on just one use of ecstasy, and this will help your dancing as well, that you were telling us about, <laughs> but, the, um, but there's the, it does actually, it, it can have a very positive effect. And, and we're, we're talking about, I don't know how much, how big the research has been on that, how, well, how broad it's been. Well, that's
0: using... NDMA in the therapy session Mm. so because part of the problem with trying to treat post-traumatic stress disorder is in order to talk about the trauma you have to remember the trauma which can be the thing that triggers the stress response so it's incredibly incredibly difficult to treat because you can't you sort of have to induce the the trauma to treat it so the therapy session itself can become a trigger and that kind of thing and it's really sort of dangerous but MDMA has a number of features that make it quite useful in that situation it makes you feel connected with the people around you it makes you feel safe and if you can utilize that within the therapy then it can be a place where you can actually think about that memory without it necessarily triggering the the sort of the trauma that's the theory behind using it in that way
1: so presumably drug laws hinder science did i did i put them in a box untouchable can we actually do what anything once they are in that box?
2: The problem we've got is there's already a massive disin- disincentive for pharmaceutical companies investing in anything they can't patent and own because they can't sell it. So to add on to that that substance is illegal, and even if they wanted to sell it, they couldn't, there's... There's, where is the funding going to come from to actually do that research?
1: See, I love the fact you're saying that, because if I said that without any kind of science background, it would be conspiracy theory. But now we can actually get that on record that there's some kind of good clout to that theory.
0: The thing I was... Because I've always wondered about this. So what about Sativex? Because some pharmaceutical company has marketed Sativex, which is a cannabis extract spray, and it's been, marketed, well, it's been um, licensed to treat multiple sclerosis.
2: For Sativex... A canna- for cannabis, it's happening in America and Canada, they've taken a gamble and they've taken a big gamble, and it's looking like it might pay off, because state after state is legalising, certainly from medicinal use, but, but for ecstasy, that's a long
3: way off now how's that happened in America? because I think you know a lot of people would think that it's you know the idea that there's going to be legalization of medicinal use of cannabis when we see so many other things which seem like quite large retrograde steps in the 21st century in America. what has been the arguments there what, who have been the people who have been so convincing as to change these state laws um, I think this is a
2: excuse the pun, of genuine grassroots movement. I mean, for <laughs> cannabis, there's, there's so many people that use it. There's so many people. We all know somebody that uses it. We see it all around us. Um, the, the arguments against it have just come crashing down in front of us.
1: Also, it's useful as well. They had state by state, whereas we were, we were essentially federal, so we were having to do a big lobbying change, whereas state by state, you can break it down, you can do a lot more with it. And I think you that's beneficial in some ways but I think for our dialogue it's going to be all or nothing I think you'd agree I think we're either going to get full regulation of everything or nothing at all we're going to have complete criminalisation how do we break that stalemate? mate has anybody got any ideas because I think
3: we're out about now Come on, you're the scientists. (laughs) What I love is we've been talking about science and the shop, this shop has in its window a quote from Muriel Spark which says the order of importance of uh, ideas is art and religion first, then philosophy and science last. Do you know what? I'm not going to read the fucking prime of Miss Jean (laughs) Brodie. But I find, but that you still have that thing kind of in there, you know, which is science has. Yeah, you know, science is a method, and and, you know, and and it's about that way of, of if we again, as you said, everyone has to find different ways of going. It's really great to think about things in an evidence-based way, and it doesn't make things duller. And as you, you mentioned, Carl Sagan, who I think was interviewed by Lester uh, Grinspoon, I think it was in High Times or similar to that, uh, but not under his name. I think he was just called the scientist. I think this it's direct. out in the open now. But you know, there are so many. that ability just to to look at the world and say let's work out what the right questions are and the answers may well be changeable but we can come up with the least wrong version of events how do we make that uh, get across to some of those newspapers which just want to print those things about cannabis but not cannabis creates schizophrenia but doesn't create schizophrenia and I don't really know what I'm talking about I'm just typing, you know that kind of thing well
2: that's two questions and then one of those I can answer I think Um, it's three
3: (laughs) I've been drinking (laughs)
2: <laughs> right. Well, how we can get the newspapers to tell it, to tell this information, your guess is as good as mine. But, but, what information can scientists bring to the table? For the for the example of cannabis, um, there's this is, there's a strong case that the law as it stands is actually making cannabis far more dangerous, because there's a, there's hundreds of chemicals in cannabis that may um, cause the effect of cannabis, and we all assume or if you read the newspapers, you'll assume it's this chemical called THD. But if you give THC to somebody on its own, they'll actually generally have a horrible, horrible experience. They'll feel like they're in a nightmare. Whereas if you give some other parts, components of cannabis, such as CBD, that balances, it balances that effect out, and they start to have a very good time. But CBD on its own has been studied, and it... it there's, there's strong evidence that it could be an antipsychotic, it could be an antidepressant, it could have all these beneficial purposes as a, as a medicinal drug, but it also counteracts all the really psychotic side effects of cannabis. However, um, because cannabis is illegal, um, you can actually grow a much stronger crop if you breed out CBD and crossbreed the crop to have as much THC as possible in each bud but by doing that we're incentivizing and by creating having drugs laws that make it make it very hard make it there's a massive disincentive for people to grow cannabis you're actually incentivizing them to have the cannabis to grow the cannabis that will be as useless for medicinal purposes and as bad for people's mental health as we possibly can
0: yeah exactly that and even at a more basic level because of the legal status of it we just don't know what the relative ratios of thc and cbd are in the cannabis that's available on the street and from sort of the time that you buy to the next time that you buy you might end up with completely different strength of cannabis and you won't know it until you smoke it and that kind of thing or beat it or whatever but um just the lack of being able to sort of regulate or even like find out if you're interested to know like oh I want to have a particularly mellow high or I want to have a particularly like extreme high like you can't even find that out even if you wanted to know it because there's just no information about the strength of cannabis that's out there at the moment certainly no good information
1: I looked at Neil as you was talking there Simon because Neil took cannabis live on the air on channel 4 and well do you know what doses you got Neil's walking over to the microphone. You can't see that on the podcast.
4: Well, uh, it, it was a, a double-blind trial. One was almost 100% CBD and no THC, and then another one was the opposite. So I think it was 16 or 17 milligrams of THC, so really, really high. But I loved it. The THC was great.
0: But Jon Snow had a very bad time, didn't he? He
4: did, yeah. yeah. yeah Neil, Neil wanted some hip-hop.
0: Not that one. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's pretty much, you enjoyed that entire evening, didn't you? And actually, on the back of that, it's a a slight detour for for a story to fit in with Leap and our narrative. But um, I was positively profiled that night. And with the stop and search laws, I mean, we're calling this podcast Stop and Search. There's a bit of a cheeky motif to, you know, the the arbitrary discriminatory law of stop and search. But on the way back from, from that evening, we was in the studio and the studio was pretty much the size of this, and there was cannabis plants all around. It was it absolutely reaped of cannabis in there. And it pretty much impregnated on your clothes. It was, it was there. It was rife. And I was coming back through St Pancras at half eleven at night. And I got stopped by a drugs dog. It jumped up at me and I was suited and booted. Straight away without even thinking, the policeman just pulled the, pulled the dog off, apologised, and then focused on the poor guy next to me who happened to be black. And that is what the drug laws do. They're discriminatory. That, that's... I was positively profiled because I was white and in a suit. Other people in, in Hammersmith and other areas like that don't get that opportunity, and that's what we're trying to do. You know, we're trying to put that right and wrong, because all the while the drug laws exist, we're never going to have an even society.
2: There's actually some really interesting science to do with drug dogs because if you're walking through a station, having been in a studio that reeks of cannabis past a drug dog, yeah, it's going to smell it. However, at, if, when you see drug dogs outside... Somewhere like warehouse project or a big rave or a big festival, those drugs dogs are going to smell the cannabis. But what they're really there for is for to, to for the police to identify who is carrying the drugs that they consider to be more dangerous. And that has a really dangerous side effect in what in that what happens when those revelers walk past those drugs dogs? They decide, oh crap! It's not going to just catch ten percent of people, which they actually do. What they do is they all neck the drugs just before they go past the drugs dogs, and it's only going to be a matter of time before we see people die just just by that.
1: And this pretty much goes to Neil wrote an article article today on our Vaultface, and that pretty much what you said, wasn't it? Is that people take these drugs because they don't want to be caught with them, and of course that's essentially an overdose, and that's how we're again losing people to the war on drugs, and and it, we keep coming back to the fact that the war on drugs is pretty much always going to be a, a death sentence, no matter what way you look at it. Just to bring the mood up there, just to get that out there. And in a minute, by the way, I'll, we'll, let's do a few questions as well from the audience, just because you know, we want to make this interactive. We want this as a, a proper discussion. So if anybody can think of any questions for these guys, not me, because I don't know anything. As, you, as you've seen, I'm not remotely scientifically minded. But um, I want to speak to you again, Robin, because you're so animated. And I love that. But when you do have this conversation with your child about drugs do you think you can pull these sources of credible science or do you think that parent in you is still going to to want to be dissuasive and just
3: don't do it? I don't know. I mean, it's going to depend what it's like in kind of eight years' time about what is, again, how the laws have changed, if they do change. Uh, it's going to depend on what I, you know, what I personally know about what's out there. I mean, because, you know, people always talk about the fact that now, you know, the things that I would have smoked when I was, you know, a teenager in my 20s now, everything's much stronger and, you, you know, i go off my head. And I told you, I once had some that was so strong, I forgot how to play backgammon. Um, I'm very middle class and uh, it's genuinely happened. Uh, so uh, this is one of the more wonderful anecdotes in my drug-based life. Hunter S. Thompson plays backgammon, slowly. Um, <laughs> But I, I think, so it's going to, I have to say as well, I'm going to have to keep up to date with things, and I'm going to have to know. I mean, you know, if, in terms of, of cannabis, I suppose I can always recommend, when you were saying about the stop and search things, so John LeMessurier, uh, the, uh, the the wonderful actor, of, you know, most famous for Dad's Army, he used to smoke joints in public, and he got away with it, because people, he'd just say, well, no one will believe John LeMessurier smoking a joint, and he'd just do that. So, you know, that that's again, so if, if he'd been stopped... In, in, you know, St Pancras, if a dog had leapt up, they'd go, oh, I'm so sorry, Mr LeMessurier, and he'd go, pfft, fine. The, uh... <laughs> but, you no, know, so I think that I'm just going to have to keep up to date and decide on... And from my own experience, my own limited experience, again, I, I kind of... I, I wish we didn't have to take drugs, but then it turns out that pretty much every species that has found a way of changing its mentality, we need to... What I hope is that I can give him a life where, when he does want to take drugs, it's not because he's looking for some desperate escape. From you know a hideous reality, but merely for that kind of intriguing thing. Of I mean, when LSD began, there was uh, you know the, those the, when it became big in Hollywood and you know, people like Cary Grant was taking it and 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 uh, and his his wife at the time as well and i can't remember the name of the actor there was an actor who he, he, he said why so why are you doing this lsd thing and his friend went you've got to stop there he Said because barbara's taking it because she wants to widen her mind whereas we're taking the drugs and the alcohol we're taking to try and close our mind down so i kind of have that you know hippie thing or whatever it might be to say that you know if i go hey come on let's go through the doors of perception um that's what that's what would interest me is there any truth? That make any sense? I don't
1: <laughs> think it. But try some drugs; it might work. But is there any truth to that? That that cannabis is getting stronger because Robin touched on it, and it's such a contentious issue.
0: Probably, but as I sort of said earlier, it's really difficult to know because there hasn't been really a big sort of survey of. The strength of cannabis done like at least for five years, I think um, it's something that researchers in the area really want to know as well because as was talked about earlier that whether um, THC might be something that induces psychosis but CBD might be antipsychotic if it is the case that um, THC levels are increasing and CBD levels are falling, then this could be really bad and it would be really great to know that and particularly for someone like me who does research into substance use and mental health to to lump sort of cannabis as one as one entity when it can come in all sorts of different strengths and different sort of ratios of the different elements within it to then try and work out what these associations mean without any kind of nuance about the strength of cannabis that's being used is really really difficult and not necessarily very informative and if we think that it has increased, then studies that were conducted sort of 30 or 40 years ago probably have no relevance to the type of cannabis that people are using now, but we just it's really difficult to know that.
2: I, I think, sorry, Jason, but is cannabis getting stronger is the wrong question, because strong cannabis isn't necessarily a bad thing. Strong cannabis means people put less in a spliff, means they smoke less, which means they do less damage to their lungs. However, if that cannabis is stronger in the psychoactive side... The, the psychoactive side that causes negative psychoactive effects, but weaker in the side that counteracts those effects. Then we have a massive problem on our hands.
1: You wrote an article this week, didn't
2: you? I think on indica and sativa.
1: Can you give a summary?
2: That's right. It was for a website called Prime Mind. Um, if you Google Prime Mind sativa indica, you'll find it. Um, and this this covered um, some scientists who've recently been investigating the alleged difference between sativa and indica and what we've always thought is that there's two separate strains of cannabis one is called sativa and has a very sort of up, heady buzzy high and one is called indica which sends you off into the couch and, and there's some truth to that but both of those strains interbreed with each other and as this has happened over the millennia and as it has happened rapidly in labs over the last couple of decades we've it's become the case that it's not even clear that you ever could judge the effect of a strain based on what it looked like, but if you could, uh, you certainly can't now. Um, And from all of the research that's been done so far, it seems that the cannabis that is available on the the streets in England, in America and in Western Europe, you're seeing those THC levels rising and you're seeing those CBD levels falling. However, as Susie said, that research is, I mean, we're scraping the barrel
3: here. There's, there's, There's not much to go on. So is it it's in- pretty hard to get a research grant, isn't it, when you talk to scientists? So I suppose when you say, we're just going to sit around smoking and then do some graphs, that probably takes a while to get that money, doesn't it? <laughs> so it's a challenge. <laughs> is it inherently difficult to get that information? Can you, can you get anything
1: better from America in, with regards to, to that kind of information and statistics? Because they have got a quasi-regulated market in, regulated market in Colorado, for instance.
2: You're, you're getting better information in the regulator's market. However, it's not clear that that, regulation, that, that information can be trusted. Um, there, was, there was a great article a couple of years ago where uh, a medicinal cannabis user went around all the dispensaries in California that he frequented. And he, he, was, he did this because he was having a problem in that. He was getting completely varying effects that didn't match the labels um, that he was looking at. And when he got those... Um, those strains of cannabis independently tested by labs, they were up to 95% off what they said on the label, which, which just shouldn't happen. Is that America for us, or is that just generally? I think that's, that's generally a problem you have without regulation, and even in America where you have legalization, because regulation of what they have on the label would be done by the FDA, that's at, still at a federal level, which would be, the FDA just is not the FDA's problem.
1: Right. anybody got questions? Can you put your hand in the air if you have and we'll wander over to you? It's going to be one of those awkward moments where no one has. I don't it's think gonna there's going to be any for questions. Oh, there is. Yeah, Neil can do a dance and walk around. I'm going to travel and probably give Nikki a major headache. All right, what's your question?
6: Um, you guys are campaigning for drug policy reform. Uh, why do you trust the government to regulate um, the drug market above criminals where the criminal aspect allows for a free market that's totally governed by supply and demand as, a pro- as opposed to the ulterior motives that the government might impose.
1: This is this is interesting because I think this is where Uruguay, Colorado, and the, and the different models come into effect. So, what is the good regulation? What do we do? What what is a good state model? What's not a good state model?
2: It's a good question. Um, I I don't know whether we. Of course, we can't assume that we can trust anyone to do to do anything, given the the circumstances that we're currently in with the laws that we have. Um, however, lobbying the, lo- lobbying the government and lobbying the agencies that could lobby the government is, is the best we can do or the best we can hope for at the
4: moment. I think we've got an answer from Neil. Well, I think the first thing I'd say to that is brewery busters don't have shootouts. Um, that, that's, the, that's the starting point of it. I mean, you've, you've got to remember that, that uh, also... The, all, almost all of the reported MDMA deaths are actually PMA. And with a regulated market, you wouldn't have PMA. You wouldn't have people dying. So uh, I don't know if we want to get rid of organised crime and protect our communities, then we need to have the government regulate things. We're actually really good at regulating things in this country. We had an epidemic of teenagers dying from alcohol in the 90s, much worse than it is now. It's quite bad now, but it was much worse. And um, the government brought in one of the crime and justice bills, which for the first time gave police the uh, power to take uh, alcohol from teenagers and also gave local authorities the um, the law, the ability to use kids to try and catch out off-licences that were selling to kids. And that brought down the deaths, for teenage deaths um, from alcohol, uh, it, it, it quartered, so it, sorry, it went down to a quarter of what it was before. So that's a lot of teenagers that were alive as a result of regulation. And we can only do that because we have a regulated alcohol market. So that we're good at regulation in this country.
3: So, isn't that, that's the the first thing he says, well, it's one of the main things, which is a supermarket or whatever. If it sells something, you can, if those things aren't in what it says are meant to be in it, in the ingredients list, then that is an offence. You're not, so even though there might be problems with, you know, who's going to regulate, the fact that you can go, hang on, I now have a legal right to go, this isn't what I thought I was buying. This isn't right. This is, so it said, it basically means the ingredients list has to match up to what it says. So I presume that is, Quite an important, again, the first point you 're making, important uh, thing. The, the
2: perfect example for why we need regulation is for cocaine, um, there's there's huge amounts of cocaine users in this country, and nearly all of them are putting themselves in a massive amount of harm, potential amount of harm, because they're all snorting a chemical called levamisol. And the only reason that's in cocaine, in, in nearly all English cocaine, nearly all American cocaine, nearly all cocaine in the Western world, is because it can't it can't be detected in street tests. Um, if you get a cheap drug testing kit on the on the internet, it probably won't bring up Levami- levamisol. And if, if cocaine was regulated, if these drugs were regulated, you'd overnight take, out, take away some of the biggest dangers that they present.
3: Why is that a danger, by the way? Because I don't know anything about liver anazoles.
2: It, it's, it's a danger because if you take enough of it, it can destroy your immune, immune system. Right. It can cause a catastrophic crash of your immune system. Um, and, and then you catch a cold, you, you catch some disease that you, your body would normally defend against, and, and it takes you out. And also from our side, I think
1: criminalisation, I think the emphasis needs to go on that. I think you've also got a follow-up point, I mean, I can see that. So without any kind of regulation you're still going to have criminalisation.
6: But I would say that um, uh, prohibition is a form of regulation and um, sorry, I lost the point of what I was going to say. So would you... I don't, I don't ne- yeah, I don't necessarily think that the government is in the best place to regulate it in a way that's beneficial to the health of drug users, I think that um, education as opposed to regulation is the key, and whether or not it's illegal or legal, if people know about what they're taking and know how to take it safely, that's more the answer.
3: So we- I kind of agree with that in one way but apart from the fact of knowing this kind of especially English mentality which says that the moment something's illegal then you just you brush it under the carpet and it doesn't exist and I think that's part of the problem which is can you change people's mindset enough to make them believe because people just get, you know, parents whatever it is, get, get so my child must not do this illegal thing so I wonder if what you're saying car-pole. I sorry,
6: then the child will get a headache and they'll give them Calpol and won't tell them that it's a drug Whereas drugs are something that are used in a very wide, wide way to treat a lot of things, uh, both medically and recreationally, and why can't they be branded under the same bracket and people educated as to the the benefits and the harms of different ones, as opposed to saying recreational drugs are bad and medical drugs are good?
3: But I mean, I suppose the thing with Calpol is you don't buy a thing from somewhere; it's just called headache cure which might be... An, I mean, I'm not bigging up big pharmaceutical here. There's an enormous number of problems both with big and small and all manner of, of different kind of worlds in the world of pharmaceutical. But I suppose that you at least know Calpol is meant to... You know, it, should your child have a terrible adverse reaction, I'm going, then there may well be ways you can take out and investigate what's going on there. I don't know, really. I mean, I'm just just—I'm interested in your point. It's but, more the attitude.
6: Why would you say Calpol's fine and then recreational drugs are bad when they both fall under the bracket of drugs... Yeah. Why would you not...
5: So you think ban everything. ...and
6: educate people towards the the different effects and harms and benefits of... The range
3: of them. Oh, I think we should know. I mean, I totally agree in terms of being educated. I think there's uh, far too many of us all the time. And I mean, it's the same with antibiotics as well, which, you know, can sometimes be dealt out by doctors. And as we're seeing now, because of evolution, that can can be a problem that antibiotics only work so long before mutation, heredity, natural selection. so I think it's important for us as human beings, whatever the drugs are, whatever the, it is we're taking, whatever we're eating, to actually arm ourselves with information. You know, knowledge is, I think William Calvin said, you know, knowledge is a vaccine. So I agree, which of course some people are obviously lobbying against now, the, the <laughs> anti-vaxxers or the anti-knowledge people as I, you know, but it's, um, but that, so I think it's very important to, to educate yourself. So I'd agree with that, but I'm not, I, I do think that idea of, uh, At least being able to control knowing what is in something, knowing you might react against it, you might decide not to take it, you might think this is made of bullshit and I don't want it. But having some form of control as opposed to now, as you were saying, where when you're buying something, it might be such a range of different things, which is just under that broad particular name of whether it's, you know, whether it's ecstasy or whatever it might be. Like want to
0: say so yeah, I was just going to echo that, really. I completely agree that education, that separating recreational drugs and medical drugs doesn't make any sense because lots of recreational drugs might have medical uses as well. That's incredibly important. But I think that needs to go along with regulation so that you know what it is. You can educate yourself and then make an informed decision and know what it is that you're taking. I think you need that other step as well.
1: Oh, there's lots of hands now. Where should we go? Let's go around this side. Look what you've done now!
3: Everyone's kicking off.
1: Everybody wants to go now. All right, I'm going to start off over here. Who had hands up? All right, I'm going to pass the microphone over. So I'm going to give Nikki a headache on the sound.
2: Hi. Um, it's quite a simple question. Just, um, what would be your ideal world for drug policy? Would it be that you buy it over the counter, or you're prescribed it by a doctor,
0: or what? Would it? Would everything be legal, or would just be certain things be legal?
3: Well, this is your speciality.
0: Well, so it's not really my speciality. <laughs> my speciality is understanding um, relationships between substance use and mental health. That's the, like my day job as a researcher. Um, and then my Guardian blog is kind of a side blog, sideline, secret identity, I suppose. Um, so I need time to think about that. Do you have an answer?
2: In, in my ideal world, it wouldn't be a simple case if you go to the pharmacist and say, hey, can I have a bag of cocaine and a bag of weed? But you'd, there'd be a counsellor present and you'd, you'd be able to sit down with the counsellor and say, I'd like this drug for this use. And the counsellor would give an assessment of whether you know what you're doing, whether you have a history of, of say, suicide. Um, and you'd have a conversation and... They'd decide, talk to you about the danger of the drugs, and dosages, and you'd leave with something that is probably not going to kill you, um, and
3: um, I think the world would be a better place.
2: Should
1: I, take yeah, I,
3: think, I think you're right. You, you can if it you can't become a supermarket thing because we've already seen how that works with alcohol. So, you know, alcohol is a great example, isn't it, of, of a really fucked up drug policy if you want to see it in terms of the amount of damage that occurs. And again, you need to work out something in the system which means that someone is an educated user right, there's Mr.
5: Tom Lloyd, former chief Council of Cambridge uh, well, thanks very much, and it's really been interesting so far and I hope i 'm not going to make it any less interesting in in some observations and a question and indeed an answer uh, uh, the gentleman uh, who to my left this is a podcast we've we fall into these traps um, The point for me is that all drugs are more dangerous when the criminals are in charge of their production and supply. And for me, that's just a given. We have to have regulation of some sort. And I appreciate the cynicism that is around about how well government can operate. And I I take that on board. But I'm I'm not about a perfect solution. I'm about a a, a better um, solution. Um, I think that, uh, uh, looking back on my career as a police officer, which I think builds on the idea that that prohibition doesn't work, is that if you've got a drug problem, the last thing you need is to be arrested and prosecuted. And if you haven't got a drug problem, the last thing you need is to be arrested and, and prosecuted. So we've really just got to be starting to think about something different. Now, I was invited to be on an independent panel that looked at a practical way of legally regulating cannabis. And this was then adopted by the Liberal Democrats, who I believe are still a political party. (laughs) Uh, And I think they'll come back as it happens. But um, they adopted this at at their recent um, uh, 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 convention. And it was basically a very modest way of saying, if you want to grow your own, you can do a bit of growing your own for cannabis. If you want to join a collective, you can do that. And if you want to go to a rather austere uh, retail outlet, you can do that as well. And this is like a starting point. The fact is that um, there are very sensible and practical ways, and this addresses another question, of actually regulating the production and supply and access of drugs. It doesn't mean to say the access will be perfect because obviously there's always going to be leakage. But at the moment, 100% of the market is run by criminals. And in the future, there might be leakage of around 10 or 15%. And again, for me, as human beings, we can't make things perfect. We can simply make things uh, better. Now, I do have a question, which is that I read Melanie Phillips' article about cannabis in The Times this morning. And I was trying to think of a picture um, that you, Robin, you suggested looking at a picture to calm yourself down. And I thought, actually, a major contrast would be to look at Edvard Munch's The Scream (laughs) uh, as being completely different and far calmer than anything Melanie Phillips says. But you may have um, uh, other ideas. And I can feel the pressure from you to stop um, uh, 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 asking this question. But one of the things I do feel is really important is that we do get the right sort of language. And the police service a while back... Uh, used to say um, when, they, when, when they came across people who had died suddenly, they would say, well, it was either suspicious or non suspicious. But this actually wasn't really adequate, and they moved to a new way of describing unexplained deaths as unexplained. And I think that, I think it was Dr. Susie Gage, you know, you were saying, how could we sort of express this? If we got the police and the media simply saying, it's unexplained rather than saying, oh, it was, uh, you know, methadone, which it wasn't, and all the other times they leap to something, uh, bearing in mind the kind of th- the way in which we scan the newspapers, we might start having, ha- having an impact. And, and that's an idea that I want to take up with, with LEAP, about spreading that into the police crime commissioner and chief constable kind of community. And finally... Um, I think that and there's a, there's a storyline running in Coronation Street at the moment with a wheelchair-bound woman who is using cannabis to alleviate her suffering. And that's that's um, a campaign called End Our Pain, which you'll find on Twitter and Facebook, etc. But the point is, is that a well-constructed story in a drama with people that you engage with can be very powerful. And I was thinking, Robin, that you could be very helpful because you are a public figure... And you could be extremely helpful if you could get Brian Cox, who's a real public figure, to, to, to run with this, this sort of story. So I, I put that as a proposition to you, as well as perhaps the picture that might balance Melanie Phillips' um, outrageous, egregious... I'll stop there because I don't want to be sued either. Aren't paywalls great, though? I couldn't be bothered. Uh,
3: LAUGHTER I'll tell you what. I'll take a photo of whatever Brian and me are doing at midnight of uh, the forty-eight date tour we're doing, and I said, "Now, see, now this has got it out in the open." I'm worried about the idea of unexplained using that as a terminology because, as someone who's old enough to remember the Unexplained magazine, every time I s- would see that in a newspaper, I presume it was someone who died from spontaneous combustion. Um, sorry, there was a proper question there though, not for me. To
2: me, the disingenuousness of. of dangerous drug reports really comes out when you're saying there's a a pill killed a young person and they might say it was an ecstasy pill, they might say it was whatever pill, but what they'll never do is print a picture of the pill and if they're going to do something, do that report, the one useful thing they could do is just simply show the people what the pill looks like.
4: Neil's active. Uh, from, uh, From when I was a detective sergeant, whenever there was some very foolish police officer who would stand up in front of a camera or on the radio and say, it's really dangerous pills, they look like this, they look like green trees or something. The price of those pills went up. So it's not necessarily a good idea, because people think, oh, they're really strong pills, someone's died. So once,
2: once every so often, there is a genuine dangerous pill that does genuinely kill people. And I'm not saying when you think a pill is dangerous, when you know a pill is dangerous, when you know there's a batch of tens of thousands of pills that are killing people are going around then don't mess around, tell the
3: people. Part of the problem of what we've just been saying is because no one, because it's just this great big umbrella of illegal drugs that no one trusts the, oh yeah, they said someone died for that, they probably didn't, they probably are great pills. So you end up getting kind of trapped in this little loop there in terms of where the misinformation begins and when you decide to trust the information in the mass media or not. The police
4: shouldn't do it. it should have nothing to do with the police. Neil, my point.
3: you've not got the microphone, Neil.
1: No one can hear.
4: No, my point was it should be nothing to do with the police. Yeah, It should be be carefully constructed and well-presented information for everybody.
2: Based on evidence.
1: We'll have to wrap up in a minute because we're quite... Oh, we've got a question over here from Vivian. Vivian, who runs Walter Stone's Tottenham Court Road, which everybody needs to visit because they genuinely reinvented the bookstore. This is Vivian.
0: Hello. Um, I don't run the store, just the events. Um, I was wondering, how much evidence is there that rehabilitation is more effective than imprisonment? And if there is an overwhelming amount, why hasn't, why hasn't our, our drug, poli- drug policy changed yet?
3: That's you, You'll know the answer to this, but it's, isn't the Portuguese experiment a good example of that change in, what, about 2001, was it? It was the early part of this century, isn't it, where there's a, a because Portugal had a quite a big heroin problem, didn't it?
2: Yeah, it's, it's something that is it's difficult to do a controlled trial on, but the evidence is overwhelming. Um, wherever drugs have been controlled, take Portugal, and, and there have been safe places and safe, safe drugs. Um, there have been positive results. Whereas, how can you describe locking people up and throwing them, a, or throwing away the key, as, as any kind of result? Um, putting people in jail is more dangerous than than any, than any drug.
1: We have a kind of a two-tier system here, anyway. That if you have the right social background, you don't tend to go to prison; you tend to go to rehab. We know it works. It's there. It, it really is a socio-economic point of view. If you're in the background where you've got no lawyer you've got no presence you've got no legal uh, right really but in the in the social lower demographics life is really not worth living when you've got some kind of drug problem because your your problem will be exacerbated by the law itself and we know this we we've, we've got evidence of this we've got we've certainly got social evidence of this we've probably got scientific evidence as well and it's really that simple and it is rubbish as it is.
3: You um, were going to
0: say. I don't really have anything to add, except I, I can't answer the second part of your question as to why it hasn't changed. Um, it's, yeah, it seems so obvious that that would be a good, a good move.
1: On our banners here, we've got support guys punish, and that's pretty much what it boils down to, is that we really should be doing that. We know it works. And there's a question over here behind a concrete pillar.
4: Um, yeah, I was. I was going to ask. Do you not think? Do you not think the the war on drugs is a
2: really bad banner for what is actually
5: like the war on criminals or the war on miseducation towards drugs? And um, I guess that's about
2: it. I'm, I'm going on a bit now, but yeah. Um, I mean, the drugs themselves aren't the problem. I don't like personally don't think. I think the problems, how people use them and the people um, so, sort of selling them and the criminal activity that happens around that. So, I mean,
5: I guess, if, as we've heard, the, the drugs themselves can be, can be useful, can be therapeutic, can be, um, you know, good things. Uh, and, and to have the war on drugs just seems like a, a terrible name. Wasn't
3: that Nixon? Was it Nixon who... And and he gave um, Elvis Presley a uh, special, um, you know, drug uh, drug officer. Didn't he give him like kind of a you know, drug enforcement officer? And you know, you can look at a list in a lot of biographies of Elvis Presley and see the list of pills he was on. And there is a, you know tremendous irony. To, I mean, there was there was I don't know the historical reason. There was a history, It was one of those things, wasn't it? Of going, we need a kind of socio political issue which can distract. Is it one of those ones? It's practically being stage managed from the word go. Um, and I, I think we're a long way past that now. But, but
2: when the, drug, the drugs war really came into being, um, I, th- I think there's a lot of evidence that Nixon and, and a few others were really using it as a way to put people that didn't fit into their ideal and didn't agree with their political stance into jail.
1: So to wrap this one up, if we can do a summary,
2: if that's remotely possible,
1: science, drugs, just chuck it all out there, Simon, what you
2: got? I can't put everything that I want to say into one sentence so what I will say is for anything that I've spoken about tonight if you search Neurobonkers on Google and the relevant keywords you'll find what I've written about those things
1: and I I do recommend that Neurobonkers is absolutely fantastic especially the Just One joint article which is just my all time favourite Susie
0: Um, I'm going to do another plug for my podcast so um, a lot of the thing that's come out of this evening, I think, has been about how important education is regarding different substances, the harms around them, but also potential benefits they might have. So um, if you keep an eye out on the Scroobius Pip network, again, the same as the Leap podcast, um, in the next month or so, I'm going to start releasing these episodes. And it's me chatting with Scroobius Pip about different recreational drugs legal and illegal and the sort of idea behind it is that there's no hyperbole no spin and no judgment it's just information about what we know but also what we don't know at the moment about these substances and I think that for me the most important thing is education so that people can make informed decisions about about what they want to do. And Robin, what you got?
3: Well, um, my new uh, drug-based podcast. I wasn't going to do one, but it seems like there's a real market out there, so really I'm going to start recording that. We're right hoping soon.
0: there's a market. Um,
3: the, uh, um, well, I, do, I, I would agree basically with the idea that you with everything not just drugs whatever it is as much as possible try and seek out sources that you genuinely believe may well the starting point is by people who've actually done research you know it's the same with you know foreign affairs news or anything like that try and get to the best source and try and wheedle it down and find for everything that you do go you know evidence-based thinking there's so many different parts of our brain as well which are going to ignore it anyway and there's so many wonderful different sides of the, 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 the human mind some of them wonderful and some of them, you know, bizarre and problematic. But I just think, you know, seek out the best sources, and it probably will not be in in the mass media, you know, and it, and probably it won't be one tweet. If you base your opinion on 140 characters, you may well have erred from better sources.
1: And thank you, everybody, for turning up tonight, because it genuinely is a, a global conversation, because we just found that out at the UN, which we're going to discuss at another... Uh, podcast and that was thoroughly depressing so on that note everybody go back happy, thank you for coming along this has been Leak UK's podcast we're going to call it Stop and Search, thank you very much Well I hope you enjoyed that, that was the first one and we've got a lot more to come we've got a lot more panel discussions, live ones we've got a lot more recorded panel discussions, we want to talk to everybody that's involved in this and really get to the bottom what's going on. And while I'm at it, there's some big thank yous that I need to make as well. First of all, uh, Nicky, the producer, who's sorting all this out as we speak. Thank you, Nicky, for doing this. And also Adam Richardson, who you can find on mynameisad.co.uk, and that's also his Twitter handle. And Adam is responsible for the Stop and Search artwork, who... I cannot again thank enough because I do not understand that world, and he's done a brilliant job for us. And also, the screenshot, the, uh, the the actual photo of me, embarrassingly, was done by Drew from Let Me Look TV, which you can find that is at his Twitter handle, but also Let Me Look TV. You can find him on. And also, just thank you to Scroobius Pip and A Cars for hosting us because without them, we wouldn't be getting the exposure that we're getting. So thank you so much for that. And please, please, please get involved find us at UKLEAP and also UKLEAP.org you can find me at Jason Tron and please subscribe get back in touch with us and, and be part of this conversation so until next time and we've already got the next one planned, ready and ready to go thank you